Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Today you are in for an exciting conversation. We are talking to Sybil Kashimba, an anthropologist who works in Kenya around mobile money. We'll be talking about how mobile money has changed how people interact with their family, friends and other people in their social circles, as well as how the changing properties of money itself from something physical to now digital has changed our relationship to it. So stay tuned and listen to this conversation. It is a good one. Hi there, everyone. Today we have Sibyl on the show. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So in your own words, how would you define anthropology? Okay, I I was not expecting such a difficult question. (laughs) Okay, maybe like, um, what do you love about anthropology then? How about that? Okay, all right. So... I interpret anthropology very broadly because I've been in this field for about 20 years now, and I've done some very different kinds of research, I think, over the years. And I I started out, actually, I was trained as an archaeologist, and I learned to nap flint and to analyze lithic artifacts. And uh, it got me thinking about technology, I think, in ways that probably only an archaeologist would think about technology. And today I'm studying a topic that I never thought that my archaeologist self would ever study uh, with mobile phones and new dimensions of social life in Kenya. I am now looking at that topic. So I, I think what's great about anthropology is that you can study potentially so many different dimensions of the human experience. Um, even with the same training, you can adapt your intellectual tools to different topics and to different problems. I've been able to do that with, with some success. And so I I have never been bored. Um, I've always suffered from a certain amount of commitment uh, anxiety, and I have never been bored as an anthropologist because I've been able to study many different kinds of things. Well, then our next question would be, it's pretty typical one considering that this is a podcast on technology, but um, how would you look at technology? You know, I I started getting, I I never thought of myself as a techie person at all. In fact, much of my exposure to the cultural setting that I'm working with now, uh, I've been working in Western Kenya and looking at technology, but my entree into that culture, my exposure to those settings really had nothing to do with technology. For about 20 years, I have been an in-law to my husband's family, uh, who is from Western Kenya. So to just be integrated into a new social group as an in-law, as kind of marrying into the family and learning a whole different set of social rules and ways of interacting and different ways of behaving that are appropriate with different kinds of relatives and so on. All of that was my initial sense of that particular setting. And it's only after understanding that that mobile phones got added on to that 
And my question was how that would change all the rules that I had previously learned about interacting and connecting with different kinds of people. So really, my interest in technology is not the technology, but rather what people do with it. But I find that the the interaction between people and technology is is what I'm really interested in. And one cannot really go without the other. Yeah, that's a pretty, I guess, hot topic at the moment, isn't it? Technology and people. So I guess I'm kind of more interested in your work into um, Kenya and um, what you've done there with researching um, mobile technologies and that. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Okay, oh, like, sure. And yeah. um, I think it would be great just because you you were mentioning um, how you came into technology through the people and how that it changed um, the social dynamics of the group. We w we would love if you can elaborate on that more, uh, because the main kind of question that we have surrounding this podcast is what type of relationships people build with technology? What is the sociality um, aspect around that? So you speak to your experience in Kenya on that. Let me make it kind of backtrack a little bit. You know, one thing for me, being exposed and understanding the culture that I'm working in right now came first from the experience of being an in-law in my husband's family. And what I learned through that experience is to be a, an outsider and an insider a little bit at the same time. Because, you know, in-laws are kind of viewed with a kind of respectful distance. You know, they are included and maybe treated, you know, a little bit like they're special, yet at the same time, they learn, or at least I learned, that I wasn't exactly in with the group as much as my husband was. I had still married into that. And this took me a long time to understand the many dimensions of that. You know, for for one thing, you're, you're never called by your name. You're always referred to as in-law or as mother of so-and-so, you know, and that's a little bit that social distance. In fact, I asked once, I asked one of my husband's uncles once, I said, you know, why is it that you never call me by my name? And he said, well, I'm not even supposed to know your name. You know, you're just supposed to be, <laughs> you know, a, someone floating around the edges who is respected and yet, you know, not really fully as much of this group as we are. So it's it's a little bit uncomfortable, but it's also really fascinating. And it's a goldmine for any anthropologist, of course, to, to uh, you know, learn a culture, you know, through the lens of your spouse's relatives, which is what I had the opportunity to do. And I become very used to visiting Kenya and then making a trip from the capital city out to the rural areas where my husband's family lived. And it's about a seven or eight hour drive over pretty rough roads. Uh, when I visited Kenya in 2008 and 2009. During that visit, I was a Fulbright lecturer at uh, Egerton University, which is one of the universities in Kenya. So I had this year-long Fulbright and, uh, you know, I had gone there to continue some of my work with potters and potting and teach at this university. And, uh, you know, one of my sisters-in-law picked me up from the airport and, you know, I asked her about, you know, when we were going to make this arduous trip out to Western Kenya to see uh, my mother-in-law because I knew that was very important. And she said, 
oh, you know, let me show you this new thing called M-Pesa. Let's get you a phone. So we went the very next day and we got a phone and I got an account and I learned how to send money. And I remember we sat in the Java Cafe in Nairobi, which is one of these kind of Starbucks-like places. And she explained all about how to use this phone, all about how I could send money, you know, to the relatives, which would essentially, I mean, she didn't use these words, but it would essentially free up my time and, and and, you know, allow me not to visit as often. It could perform that obligation and, and also send all kinds of messages and caring kind of as a proxy to myself instead of making this, you know, arduous journey. And so I realized right then that, you know, the rules of a little bit, these rules of interaction were changing, you know, as the kind of mobile technology could also do the work of connecting people. And this is still one of the topics that people debate you know, yes, you can send money instead of visiting. So how how much of that substitution can you really do and get away with? And is it really the same thing as visiting? And so, you know, these are all the debates that people are engaged in as, you know, the technology lays itself on top of all the prior social norms and habits that people had of interacting. And since then, I've been interested in, in learning more about that. Yeah, I wonder how the in-laws felt about um, not having their kids visit. And actually, I wonder like how they would interact with the technology. Like, did they have any difficulties understanding it, or um, was it any difficult from their end? Do you think? You mean, are you talking about when when people first begin to use some of these services? I mean, you know, it's it's something that people of course, are concerned about and engineers are concerned about. I think this service is really kind of a model because it really is very easy to use. And, you could know, you maybe sorry for our listeners that are not sure. familiar with that system in Kenya. Could you briefly explain it, how it works? I mean, what, what you do is if you have cash money and you want to transfer that money, let's say to another person, you visit an agent and an agent is someone who accepts your cash and then uploads the same amount of money to your digital account. So then you, you see a text message, you know, saying that you have a certain balance and you can basically carry that balance as a kind of mobile wallet, if you will, on your phone. And you don't need a smartphone or internet connection. You can use a feature phone or basic phone of the type that are still very common in many parts of the world. And in, in Kenya, I believe only about 15% of people are thought to have a smartphone. So, you know, it's very important that this technology be accessible on basic phones. So once once you visited that agent and uploaded the phone to your mobile, you can then use a text message, SMS, to send that uh, money to anybody whose phone number you happen to know. And then they can visit an agent in their location and receive cash. Or they could choose to keep that amount on their mobile wallet M-Pesa account, if you will. And that's how the transfer service works. So it's dependent on the agent, you know, visiting the agent um, to sort of cash in and cash out. And that's the kind of the original system. You're an archaeologist and you're interested in the material aspects of the relationship that people have to objects and that. But like um, with the mobile money, how does this change people's relationship to like money in general? 
And do people like still have um, carry cash in these areas? Right. Great topic. So it's interesting because there are many people who would like people, of course, to, to move from cash to digital forms of money of various kinds. And the idea is that digital money might be cleaner, safer, uh, easier to track, easier to preserve. But I've found, and I think a lot of other people have found as well, that you know the money transfer service is not really a money storage service. In other words, once people transfer money, it's very often immediately converted back into cash through the, again, through the agent. And one reason is because in people's local environments, cash might be preferred. I found that people still need cash and they want the visibility and the tangibility of it. Uh, It's also true that unless you're very close to an agent, you can kind of see that the money storage on the phone might not be particularly useful if you want to buy things. And so I think that's another reason why people tend to cash out their funds and, and they tend to use their cash. What they would really like to do is get people away from that now. They want to kind of create a digital ecosystem where keep people can buy things, you know, circulate money and purchase things and do everything digitally. And that has been a big push among some of the people in the financial inclusion space. And it works in some areas and it works less often in other areas. Has there Um, been any digital threats or like any like um, security issues around this sort of digital money and transfer? Well, I mean, I think... I think these systems are probably very, very hackable. I I don't have any of those sources at the top of my head right now, but um, many studies have shown that these systems don't give consumers the protection that they really need. There have been many instances of theft, sometimes by the employees of various companies, if they steal very small amounts of money when they're settling cash against digital. uh, At the end of the day, uh, people might not notice for a long, long time. Um, There's also a lot of scams and other forms of corruption around using digital money, sometimes agents, sometimes it's um, users, and sometimes thieves will wait at the agent, you know, for users to come. And so in reality, I, I don't think this system is like inherently better than cash for every possible reason. You know, I think money has a lot of different functions. And, and I think that this digital form of money, it moves very fast, it flies across space, people sometimes call it flying money, flying through space. And so, but it, it can also be, because it flies through space, it can also be, um, you know, difficult to track. And, uh, you know, people can use it for things that they're not supposed to use it for. And so, you know, every form of money has all kinds of dimensions. And, you know, people seize upon those affordances, uh, you know, in particular situations and for particular reasons. Mm-hmm. I have a question that kind of connects to that. Um, we've done uh, recently some some research around this topic um, in New Zealand, and and one of the things that we op- we are observing here is that in this transition from you know people in the past used to use banks for everything, for storage, okay. for transfer, and especially banks that are very solid, supported by the government, that have a long history. So there's a lot of trust in giving the bank the kind of 
the responsibility and the, uh, the power to do that for you. And with the rise of all of these, you know, um, startups or companies that are trying to digitalize um, transfer, but also storage of money, what we've seen here is that people have a huge barrier of trust to kind of give their money or give their services to um, the digital companies because of this history with, with the banking sector. And I would assume that in Kenya it's completely different, especially in those areas that, you know, people don't have access to the financial sector in the same way as they do in the Western world. So I was wondering, what does that do to their, you know, barriers of trust or distrust when it comes to embracing or not um, this type of mobile technologies? Well, you know, in Kenya just recently, in 2015, there were two large banks that failed uh, spectacularly. One of them is called Chase Bank, no relationship to J.P. Morgan Chase, but the directors of Chase Bank just wrote themselves big checks with all their depositors' money, and then the bank's the bank failed, and, and there was another similar case that same year in Kenya. So the, the banking sector historically was very small. Uh, it was dominated by European banks and then some Asian banks, and really it only served a very small number of people. And that's, of course, where mobile money came into that space and met some of those needs. And there, there have been other banks more recently that have arisen with the objective of uh, reaching less affluent people, you know, who were unbanked. And so if you look at the statistics, you'll see that the number of people who have since gotten a, a bank account in Kenya, say over the past 20 years, it has risen dramatically, the number. But I think actual usage, you know, usage of accounts, usage of financial services, you know, is something that really needs to be looked at at a deeper level. And the company that has produced the most successful mobile money service in Kenya is Safaricom, which has a relationship with uh, the European company Vodafone. Uh, it's a subsidiary of that. But Safaricom has worked very, very hard to uh, earn the trust of Kenyans. And it's, it's often seen a little bit as a humanitarian development actor by a lot of people. Um, Kenyans often, you know, they really... Many of them see M-Pesa as sort of a form of cultural wealth. They really see it as something that they have produced and that they can offer, you know, the world as an example of, um, you know, a local innovation. They don't see it as a development innovation coming from some, somewhere else. They see it as their own money. So Safaricom historically had a lot of, you know, trust as sort of Kenya's most successful company. Once someone once told me that, you know, our brand, he's talking about our Kenyan brand, and he said our Kenyan brand includes Lupita. I don't know if you know the actress Lupita Nyong'o. So he was kind of enumerating for me all the aspects of the Kenyan brand. He said it's Lupita and M-Pesa and all the runners, you know, everything when you think of when you think of Kenya, you know, he decided M-Pesa was one of those things. You know, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, though, because um, M-Pesa is also associated, I think, with the government. And most recently, there was a very divisive election in Kenya in 2017. And uh, the opposition actually called for a boycott of M-Pesa. 
partly because the president owns a bank that has given millions of microloans over M-Pesa. Uh, the opposition also um, accused the company of transmitting false election returns and transmitting bribes over M-Pesa. So, you know, it's a little bit, you know, they... It's, it's always shifting. You know, the original achievement has now become the center of a, a lot of debates in Kenyan society about who gets to own this channel, whose money will be carried over it and to whom. And I think a lot of people are beginning to realize that social inequality might be increasing and that these microloans, which have now become really popular, you know, might even be enriching the president's family and so on. So the sheen is a little bit off in terms of the achievements of mobile money as people begin now to see more about what it what what is happening and what people are doing with finance so Again, one of the challenges that we're seeing in the Western world around digital money is that it's kind of like interesting the way you start changing your habits and your relationship with money. If your relationship has been rooted for so long in a, in a complex network system that depends on um, institutions. It has been normalized, the way you use money, the way you conduct money. I mean, it's in, in a society that it's so interconnected, you want to do everything extremely fast, right? In a microsecond, you, we even have a system here in New Zealand where you don't even have to insert your password. You just click your card to the machine and it, yeah. it goes through and you just go away. So it's kind of like everything is interconnected. I don't want to think about it. So every disruption to that space requires quite a lot of reframing of how you deal with money. Okay. So um, I was wondering in a space like Kenya that, that this is not the case. Uh, did that make people maybe embrace the technological changes faster or... Um, you know, or they're still kind of like they have different types of social habits around money that are still as ingrained as we have ours here. And it's as difficult kind of like to shift, but in a different way. Yes. Okay. So that's a that's a very big topic. I'm trying to just think of some examples. What I see happening in Kenya is an additive process, not a process of substituting one form of money and, you know, habits and circulations of money with another, but rather a kind of additive process where I think the new digital money, the new mobile phone money is added into existing circulations of different kinds of money that are have been there for a very, very long time. So, one real focus, actually, of mobile money transfers, you know, of using the service is actually funerals, coming of age rituals, weddings, so rituals of the life cycle. And, you know, if you read industry reports, there's some puzzlement about that. Uh, in fact, industry reports show that this is one of the most important reasons why people send money. And it is uh, one of the contexts in which people collect the most amount of money, sometimes, you know, 10 times or more as much money. Uh, for example, uh, there was one report that, you know, noted that when people are sick, no one sends money. But when the person dies, they send, you know, they will receive, you know, many, many times even an annual salary, right? So, you know, the question is why? And the industry would like people to do something that they consider more economically rational, right? Like, yeah. why don't you take this person to the hospital so they won't die in the first place, yeah. right? 
And in fact, the, even the industry reports use that example to say, well, if maybe if we give people a faster money, they'll send money before the person dies, yeah. right? So that's an example of, can we create a faster form of money that will magically transform this funeral do donation into the donation at the hospital so that the person lives, right? And so I think that's an example of actually how we don't understand what other people are doing with money. And the reason is because there are all these prior institutions around money that are already there. So really, the funeral is like a financial institution in its own right. You know, at every stage of the life cycle, you know, the community contributes funds. Uh, those funds are meant to build value over time, you know, for the community, for one's heirs. You know, there's a real focus on the arc of the life cycle as kind of a temporal frame for, you know, these financial decisions and, and investments and so on. So, um, you know, those are really, really long-term ways of thinking about finance. You know, people, when, when you say finance, people think of making investments and building durable assets and buying property or building a rental house or buying farmland. But, you know, what the industry wants to do is give people faster and faster and faster money. You can do this immediately. Yeah. And I don't know if people really care about that very much. You know, like there, there there's a, a kind of payment, Lipa Nam Pesa, it's called, you know, it's sort of the equivalent of passing your phone through um, one of those readers, but, you know, it involves using using M-Pesa to pay for something. And, you know, as an experiment, I went to one of the malls in Nairobi and used one of these. I decided not to use any cash to buy everything with my phone. And, you know, it ends up it ends up there are six different ways that this can happen. And sometimes the clerk needs to write down your phone number and call his boss because he doesn't know how to do it. You know, like it just takes forever, you know, to not use cash in the mall in Nairobi because it's offered and this, the sign is there saying, you know, we offer, you know, digital um, payment. But when you really try to do it, oftentimes the person behind the counter doesn't really know how to do it. Or he has to look, look up your phone number on a website and figure out how to process it. So it's, it's really, really funny, but people don't care about doing things fast. Um, you know, their sense of what finance is, is, is very long term. So, you know, I've been trying to write about that as well. So you'll send money for, you know, a few, donation, but you're hoping that all those funds will come together yeah. and not only produce, uh, you know, a funeral that demonstrates prestige and the value that this person had, but also, you know, might be used to make an investment for his heirs, you know, to ensure that maybe his, his children will have something to inherit or something like that. So, you know, people think of finance as like really long term there. They don't think of it as payday loans and other kind of short term things. And and that's what that's what the industry is offering people. I think this is fascinating. And, and I think it, it really speaks to kind of like the ideology of that culture around money and community. I was wondering um, if that form of, of digital money or if that form of, of using money that you've observed in this community has any connection to um, redistribution, inequality, and, and these kind of larger topics around money. Sure. I mean, one thing I think that is, is very important about the M-PESA networks as people have created them as, you know, socio-technical networks mm -hmm. is that I think they are, that their major function is to distribute mm -hmm. value. Mm -hmm. For example, when I began my very first study, which was a kind of network study, 
I worked in a couple of uh, local communities in Western Kenya, and I started out, I asked uh, to be, to start out the pathway with a family that received a lot of remittances. So I started out in a home that was often, you know, above average in terms of the wealth or the affluence of the home. Sometimes there was an, uh, an international migrant who sent remittances, or sometimes there was uh, someone who worked in Nairobi who was a civil servant who was well compensated and sent a lot of money. And then what I what I did at that first home was I asked where the money went next. I then asked the people in this home, now who do you transfer money to? And then I followed the money, so to speak. And as I charted the pathways of this money, I went from you know from an affluent home to less and less affluent. Home Homes. And what I found was that the, the 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 money gets broken up and distributed, you know, down the line, and that it is a way of distributing wealth at a community level, and that that's you know very important to people. You know, they think a lot about who they know who needs money, who's in trouble, and and this isn't necessarily a conflict between their personal aspirations and the community. It's really more that they really feel themselves to be a part. Of of the community. Not that they don't feel those conflicts, they certainly do, but participate in the community and to circulate value is, I think, something really important that these networks actually do. And that tends to be, again, it tends to be a little bit downplayed in the way that a lot of knowledge is produced about this topic. If, for example, if you just if you do household surveys and you treat each household as a kind of economic unit, you, you're not going to see those, those relationships and those pathways. So I've tried to, you know, highlight that as some Something that is also happening in in important ways. Along the same line of inequality, um, we found when we were doing our own study into um, financial technologies that some people, particularly older people, were technologically more illiterate. But what my question is more like: Is anyone excluded from using these technologies? I do think there are new forms of exclusion that are playing out. I found that, interestingly enough, older people are not only successful at using these technologies, but sometimes, oftentimes, women especially tend to be the focus or the hub of networks. And oftentimes people will ask a child or a sibling, you know, to help them use the technology and even literacy, I've had informants who don't really read, but they know what the men- they know the shape of the words in the menu, so they can use it. So you know those kinds of barriers I find less significant. But I find again, it's it's kind of the social barriers as these networks become really important for people financially. Uh, you know, there are different ways of being good at participating in networks and thinking about your positioning in a network. So generosity is really important and it can attract people to you. Other personal characteristics can be important too. And if you have assets or collateral that you can offer, you know, if your reputation, you know, recommends you to others, then you can become important in these circulations. You know, people form savings groups, you know, friendships, and you don't necessarily have to have material assets, but you might have 
a, a generous personality or sort of an entrepreneurial social spirit that leads you to have success in, you know, interacting with people around social and financial groups. So, you know, I think those are those are new forms of exclusion for people who don't have social networks or, you know, also don't have uh, certain resources, material or, you know, personal, you know, to enable them to kind of interact with people. You know what I love about this conversations, and this might be a bit off topic, but with these digital monies and these new technologies in the financial section, like they become normalized in our culture. I always think of credit cards, say, in the Western world and how we don't really realize that it's all technological until that transaction has failed, how it's become so absorbed into like how we do things. How normalized has it really become in Kenya? Right. So, I mean, I think that um, people still have more doubts about trusting this the system. Um, there are an enormous amount of scams that, you know, take place over the digital channel. For example, you may... You may be looking for someone, if you're an urbanite, you might be looking for someone to help maybe take care of your family or cook for you. So you might, you know, send a message to your home area. Is there someone who could come? And then someone will say, oh, yes, I have someone. She can come and help you. Just send us money for her bus fare. And then you'll send money for the bus fare. And, of course, she will never come. So (laughs) people, you know, people are willing to... I think betray someone else's trust for a very small amount of money, even if they are not, you know, particularly poorly off. Um, People are, you know, disappointed and betrayed all the time. These remittances also cause a lot of jealousy and arguments in families. And yet people still continue to... Uh, to send, to try to create bonds of trust, even when they sometimes don't don't really end up panning out in the ways that people wanted. People keep joining savings groups. Sometimes people abscond with the, the win, the money that gets circulated around. Sometimes people abscond because they don't want to take their turn uh, giving. Or, and yet people still continue to join these groups. Um, people are even joining groups now on Facebook or WhatsApp, and they're circulating money with people they don't really know very well, which I'm really fascinated by. People form finance groups to buy plots of land together or, you know, to build houses together. And they don't actually know the people that they're going in with very well at all. So I'm really fascinated by that. I think people have so much hope and they're willing to take a lot of risk because when you trust someone really that's a that's a risky act, right? You don't know. Trust is really about trying to overcome the uncertainty and the risk of not knowing someone, right? Otherwise, it's, no trust is needed, right? And so it's almost like people are kind of rebuilding that sense of financial trust, you know, kind of from the ground up. And I think that's simply because of, you know, the history of a post-colonial society and their institutions aren't really as strong as they would like them to be. Yeah, I, I think that that is, that is so... Wonderful. It makes me, I mean, I, I don't have personally experience with Kenya and everything that you're telling me just resonates back to our reality or the ones that I've experienced in Western Europe, South America, um, and now here in the Pacific. And I, I, and I think especially the, the reflection on, on money and community for me, it's very interesting 
because in this type of uh, spaces of the world that we inhabit, for so long, money is associated with institutions where you automatically place that trust because they don't fail you or you don't have experiences of those failures. Money and social acts, they're not so clearly intertwined as they are there. It must be fascinating to study that. And I, and I wonder if, you, if you've made at some point any parallel with that world and other worlds or some comparatives with other types of cultures. So, I mean, I think one thing that I can pick up on in what you've said is money is sort of an idea mm -hmm. and it's this sense of measuring value. And, and so that idea can be applied to many different sort of materialized in different ways. And in my part of the world, there are many different kinds of money that have just gotten added on, added on, added on. So this latest money is simply added into the mix, I think, for people. And, um, you know, there are also very longstanding ideas about people as value, you know, bride wealth and other ways of kind of materially, materially valuing people that, of course, have been a big theme in anthropology and I think that are still still important to people. That's why funerals are really important to people. So all these different kinds of money are just kind of get heaped together as a big palimpsest. And, you know, people will accept a variety of different yeah. ideas of what value is. And that's been very interesting to me to sort of think about that. And we still think of money as real when it's in our pocket and it's not. So, yeah. you know, but, but I think we're getting that sense that it's not real. I think like, you know, when the public hears about Bitcoin bubbles mm. and, you know, they start to go, yeah, you know, you does start to change your idea of money. Yeah. It's not as real as I thought it was. And so, you know, I'm not sure where that's going to take us, but, you know, I think that is really something that is now making the average person much more aware that value is not an inherent in anything. So given it's such a complex topic, I was wondering if you would have any advice for somebody that would want to study money and how people form those relationships and those ideas around money and value and worth. How would I approach it? You know, if, if I'm somebody new to the field or working in a bank and wanting to understand better, uh, go beyond this binary definition of people and money and understand better that relationship, what would you recommend? So you mean in terms of books or I'm sorry I just I just don't I don't get it really like no, I mean I mean people like for example let's say I work in a bank um, and I'm I'm working with you know either customer service or I'm working with a product um, a card or a credit card and okay. I and I just want to understand better how people find value in that object and what is the materiality of that but you know I don't know where to start from and it right. might be a okay. book or it might be just you know going out there and engaging with people but what would right. you recommend as a, as a as a nice starting point Right, good. So, um, you know, money is really hard to study. And actually, when I first began asking people about money and trying to engage with them at the very beginning, I had a lot of difficulty. I think money is very hard to study. Um, it's very emotional for people. It's very much caught up in your own personal sense of worth. Yeah. So when I asked people about amount, it was very hard to study. Um, and then I realized, actually, while I was, you know, looking at who sends money to who, I realized that if I never mentioned the amount of money at all, 
that I got all kinds of information about why and how and the sending and then how it got broken up and maybe recirculated and what was the reason and, and you know, what kind of knowledge was also circulating or not circulating about the money. I realized that if I stopped talking about the amount of money altogether, I would get so much rich data about the reason and the context for these remittances. And so, but when we think about money, we, that's what we think about money. We think that it allows us to fix a particular amount. It allows us to count mm-hmm. and do math and, and do all these things, economic things. So we just assume that that's what we should be talking about when we talk about money. But then I decided, well, let's not talk about the amount at all. And I found that people, you know, became very proud of the money they received. They became proud of the money that they sent. And they, you know, realized that, that these particular Participating in these circulations was how they built their sense of self in their community and how they fulfilled certain expectations about what their social role should be and so on. So it, it really brought out this more social dimension and the more personal dimension of people's money lives. And so I think that was something, a, a big lesson that I learned is that, you know, to get beyond the kind of economic uh, view, you know, was was to take away the one thing about money that we think of as, as the most important thing about money, which is that it allows us to measure, you know, and compare and, uh, you know, compute and and do all the math. So I took that out completely and people began to tell me a lot of very rich stories. But you know, when you fold the money back in, you can see in interviews that again, there there's an awareness that they might be being judged mm-hmm. and uh you know, this issue of how much money suddenly be, makes it very hard for them to tell the full story about about anything. So I, I, I found different ways to talk about amounts. You know, sometimes I might put it on, ask them to do it, put it on a questionnaire. I did that once. Like, you know, if there is an amount of money, would you like to put it on the, on the write it down on the paper? You know, it's almost like if you wanted to interview people about, you know, their sex life or something yeah. very touchy yeah. and personal, it really is that personal. So yeah. anyway, yeah. That is such a great advice, Sybil. Um, we we have when we did our research around that, we found the same challenge of uh, once once you start putting the number there, then then the judgment becomes really strong, and especially when you don't have enough time to build rapport with people. Yes, um, exactly. That makes it even more difficult, and especially when you are, for example, an ethnographer on behalf of a company that is your bank, or that is that that kind of like makes that judgment even stronger. Because you're a representative of a of an organization, and they don't want to be judged by that organization because it might impact their credit score or it might. So right. there's whole all these chains of associations that people make uh, with their identity and your identity, and and that through the value of the money. So I love your advice. I just think it's so <laughs> it's so simple and it's so effective. And you know, like taking that monetary aspect completely out and focus on the sociality around it. It's mm-hmm. it's awesome. I'd like to say thank you and also to all of our listeners. I'd just like to let you know that we will link any work you'd like to share with us and, um, you know, any sites, anything, so that they can have a look and engage with your research more. And um, thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.